This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. For all of recorded history, and probably even longer, humanity has looked up at the night sky and wondered about the stars we see. Are they suns just like our own? And if so, do they have planets just like ours does, and potentially even Earth-like ones that might harbor life? This was a question that puzzled generations for as long as we can remember, and yet today we're finally starting to uncover those answers. The great distances to the stars, as well as the great differences in brightness between planets and the stars that they orbit, has made direct imaging almost an impossible task. The rare handful of stars with planets around them where we've seen the planet directly are only for planets with great separations between their stars, where the planet themselves also gives off infrared radiation. Rather than attempting to directly image a planet that orbits a very bright star, an indirect technique can prove much more effective. Just like the sun exerts gravity on the planets to keep them in orbit, by Newton's third law, the law that says for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, the planets exert a gravitational influence on the sun as well. If the same laws of physics that govern our orbit and our solar system are at play in other star systems as well, it should be possible to detect those planets influence gravitationally on their parent stars. Although we think of the planets as moving in elliptical orbits around the sun, in reality, the sun also makes smaller elliptical motions because of the planets gravitationally tugging on it as they orbit it. This takes place in other solar systems too, where as a planet goes around the sun, goes around its sun, we should see that star move in an ellipse from our point of view. This should be observable as it appears to move first towards us and then away from us in an oscillatory pattern. This radial velocity method, also known as the stellar wobble method, resulted in the very first detection of planets around other stars beyond our own. In 1991, the presence of planets around a pulsar, which is a spinning neutron star roughly equal to the mass of our sun, caused the pulsar's timing, caused the individual pulses to be offset by a regular predictable pattern. This difference in timing, due to the gravitational effects of the planets, was the first detection ever of a planet around anything else in space. Finally, in 1995, the first planet around a star, a planet around the star 51 Pegasi, which is now known as 51 Pegasi b, was discovered as well. Scientists at first were a little bit surprised. This planet was very different from anything in our solar system. Not only was it much more massive than even Jupiter was, but it was far closer to its star than any planet in our solar system, including Mercury, by a tremendous amount. 
In hindsight, however, this shouldn't have surprised us. If you were to ask what type of planet would cause a star to move in a way that its radial velocity or its stellar wobble would be the greatest in magnitude, you would come up with the easiest types of planets around other stars to detect. And a planet that would be easy to detect would be short period, which means it would orbit its star very quickly. It would be massive, such as more massive than even Jupiter. It would exert the largest gravitational effect. It would take place around a smaller star. In other words, a star that would be less luminous, less massive, would be dragged around more by a large mass planet. And additionally, we would be most likely to detect a planet that was in the same plane as our alignment with the parent star. If you have a planet moving around a star in the same plane that we're looking at it, it's going to have the maximum possible magnitude in its wobble, as opposed to a face-on solar system where you'd hardly be able to detect any motions at all. What do we learn from a stellar wobble method? Because we can know what the mass of a star is just by its optical properties, by measuring the magnitude of its wobble, you can learn the approximate mass and the orbital period and distance from the planet to the star. There's another method available that allows us to learn what the radius of a planet is, and that's the transit method. When there's a fortuitous alignment, a perfect planar alignment between a star, its planet, and our line of sight, what we can see is a planet periodically passing in front of its parent star, blocking a tiny fraction of its light for a brief amount of time and enabling us, based on the amount of dimming that occurs, to infer how large the planet actually is. In 2009, NASA launched the Kepler spacecraft. Over a period of around three years, it measured the light continuously from 145,000 stars. When it saw a dimming and then a rebrightening of a star, it can tell us that that's a candidate for a transiting planet. If that transit then occurred periodically and then was followed up with observations from large ground-based telescopes like Keck, it can confirm the existence of a planet by the addition of another method like radial velocity. So far, the combined results of Kepler's three-plus-year mission and the follow-up observing that's taken place has found over 3,000 new confirmed planets to date. In addition, Kepler and the other observatories have taught us that the most common planets in our galaxy, as far as we can observe, are neither gas giants like the one in our solar systems nor the rocky planets that we recognize, but rather an intermediate class known as super-Earths. We don't have any of these in our solar system, and yet they outnumber the types of rocky planets and the gas giants in sheer number in most star systems that we've seen. 
Most planets that are found are found around M dwarfs, the red dwarfs in our galaxy. These are small, dim, faint stars no more than 40% the mass of our sun, and yet they're the most common star class in the whole universe. It's estimated that three out of every four stars are M dwarfs. We've also learned that many of these planets that we found are potentially habitable. They are the right distance from their parent star to have liquid water on their surface, assuming that water is liquid at the same temperatures as it is on Earth, meaning that they have Earth-like atmospheres. And finally, multiple planets are the norm for stars. They're just often difficult to detect large numbers of planets around a single star due to the restrictive nature of these methods. We can only see the stars with planets that have good alignments around them. If something's off kilter or out of the plane that we make with the star we view, we'll usually only be able to see one planet at most. If we took a look at any one of these M dwarf worlds, we would find that the physics of these worlds is very different from what we find in our own solar system. For one, most of these worlds will be tidally locked. Just like the moon always has one face pointing towards Earth, the near side that shows us the quote-unquote man in the moon, these other worlds around these M dwarf stars are so close to their parent star that they should be locked as well. The way gravitational forces work is the force you experience falls off as one over the distance squared. But tidal forces are so much stronger, dependent on distance, that they fall off as one over the distance cubed. So if you bring something 10 times closer to a star than, say, Earth is to our sun, its tidal forces that it experiences will not be 10 times as great or even 100. They will be a 1,000 times as great. And that's why M dwarfs tend to have tidally locked worlds. The light from M dwarfs as well is cooler and different spectrally from sun-like stars. Instead of having a large amount of ultraviolet light and light spanning the full spectrum of visible range like we have from our sun, M dwarfs will have very little ultraviolet light and their light will peak in the red and infrared part of the spectrum. To someone living on one of these M dwarf stars whose eyes evolved to see the light that their sun emits, they would see all the stars in the sky as being extremely blue. In addition, flares are common on M dwarf stars, meaning that a planet in that system would get irradiated and would experience at the very least aurorae, but potentially catastrophic stripping events from the atmosphere much more commonly. In addition, because of the tidal locking, there will be no such thing as a day on this world. You'll have three different climate zones. The near zone, which will be very hot, always facing the sun. A frozen cold zone that always faces away from the sun and never gets direct sunlight. And a ring-like zone where it's always on the border between sunrise and sunset, making a little circle around the perimeter of the world. 
In addition, the seasons will be determined by the ellipticity of the orbit. A completely circular orbit will have no seasons at all. And finally, years on this world are fast. Most planets will have orbits interior to that of even Mercury's around the Sun, meaning that a planet might complete an entire orbit in what we consider just a matter of Earth days. On August 24, 2016, a spectacular announcement was made. A team of scientists working at the European Southern Observatory were observing the closest star to our Sun, Proxima Centauri. And after a significant amount of observing time, what they found is that that star appears to wobble just like you would expect if it had a planet around it. The information we got from that observation, it has only approximately 130% the mass of the Earth. It only has an 11.2 day year, and at just 4.24 light years away, this world may be Earth-like in that if it has the same pressure at its surface, it should have liquid water, possibly oceans, rivers, and maybe even life on it. The sun would appear tremendously different. At only 12% of the mass of our sun, 14% the radius, and 0.17% the total energy, this is a redder, smaller, cooler world. And yet, if humans with our adaptations went there, even though it emits only 0.17% of the energy of our sun, almost all of that is in the infrared. Compared to the visible light our sun gives off, we would only see 0.005% of the visible light we see from Earth. It would barely be better at illuminating what we can see than the moon is. And yet, because of its close proximity, it would appear to have three times the angular diameter of our own sun, meaning in terms of area, that star would be almost ten times as large as our sun appears. It should have those same three climate zones that any tidally locked world would, but the ring part, the ring portion on the border between the day side and the night side is potentially suitable for humans to live on. If the right conditions are there in terms of what's in the atmosphere, this should be the most Earth-like region of a world like this. We've pretty much reached the limit of what we can learn about Proxima b with current technology. But as 30-meter class telescopes come online, as new space telescopes with coronagraphs or even potentially starshades come online, we can learn about the atmosphere of this world directly. We can do spectroscopy on the world if we can directly image it. And the dream, the ultimate dream, is to find out if it has the atmospheric contents that we think are conducive to life. Is there water vapor? Is there methane, carbon dioxide, or even molecular oxygen in the atmosphere? Within the next decade or two, we just might find out. 
Unlike from Earth, where the brightest star in the sky is Sirius, appearing fainter than any of the naked eye planets, the brightest stars from Proxima b are Alpha Centauri a and Alpha Centauri b, which appear 140 and 30 times brighter than Sirius appears to us. This is so bright, brighter even than the planet Venus at its brightest, that they should be visible during the day. An even bigger step, an even larger dream, would be to take a journey to this world itself. The Breakthrough Starshot Initiative aims to launch a probe there at 20% the speed of light. At 4.24 light years away, that means in 21 years, we would arrive at that world. If we took data from that and transmitted enough power that we could see it here on Earth, we would have information about that world just 25 years from now. Future technology like an antimatter drive or even potentially warp drive could enable us to get there within a single human lifetime. This would be the ultimate dream of finding a potentially habitable world not so different from our own that we could colonize, live on, or even find what sort of life is already present on it. Just 22 years ago, we didn't know of a single planet orbiting a genuine star other than our own. And now here we are in 2016. We not only know of thousands of stars with planets around them, including maybe two dozen rocky, potentially Earth-like worlds in the habitable zones of their parent stars, but we've just discovered that the closest star to us may have an Earth-like planet orbiting it, and this may be our first step to the universe beyond our solar system. The closest star to our own, Proxima Centauri, may have an Earth-like world around it after all. The implications for what else might be present in our galaxy, we are only just starting to realize. But the possibilities are extraordinary. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above, including Bakhtiar, Kathy Reese, Robert J. Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Jeroen Van Rin, Marcelo Barnaba, Jason Besanceni, Nick Tomlinson, Rafal Wojcik, Pedro Texera, Brian Terry, Danny, Denis Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew T. Douglas, Weller Tractor Salvage, Chris Shaw, Radek Nesbida, Ian Lamb, James Nance, Joe McFarland, Richard Jousey, Amira Sosnick, Rachel Merritt, Mark Bradshaw, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Jose Enrique, Harry Plumley, John Mithot, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Joe Latone, Philip Radulovic, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, DGE, John Seal, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and I'll see you next time here on Starts With a Bang. Starts With a Bang.